Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. I'm your host, Manning, and I'm the Vice President. Joining me is Danny, the Rice President. I go with the grain. And Liz, the Mice President. My official title is Commander-in-Chief. Our book this month is Moving Pictures, the 10th in the series. And are you two ready for a hot take right out of the gate? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, why not? I'm going to call this one the fifth book in the Wizards subseries, grandfathering in the Rincewind storyline. Don't at me. <laughs> Actually do at me. I thrive off the engagement. <laughs> Hot take indeed. They don't exactly factor in as major players as wizards, but I guess you could make the argument since one of the main characters is a student wizard. So where would you rate the startability of this one? Ooh. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say a solid 5, because there's quite a few things you wouldn't get if you hadn't read certain other books, but at the same time, it could serve as a good introduction as to the general weirdness of the series itself. I kind of really agree with that. This book is like really good in being like a self-contained story, but it does kind of require you to know a little bit more of like the world lore. All right. Without further ado, let's dive into the trivia section as provided by the secret extra sister who stands vigil in a sunken cinema. Moving Pictures was published in 1990, was nominated for the 1991 Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel, and has been translated into German, Dutch, and French. The concept of Hollywood is of course a reference to Hollywood, but while nobody on the disc knows the origins of that name, there's actually a story behind it. It's said that the town was named when the founder, H.J. Whitley, spoke with a Chinese laborer who described his work as I Hollywood. Thomas Silverfish is likely a reference to Samuel Goldwyn. He used the last name Goldfish as an anglicized spelling of his original last name, Gelbfish, which has some crazy spelling on it. It's Polish. Goldwyn is also a major player in the first years of Hollywood filmmaking, from the early days of Paramount Pictures to the founding of MGM, which still bears his name. The Discworld studio names are primarily parodies of famous real-world movie studios, most prominently 20th Century Fox as Century of the Fruit Bat. Of the many movies joked about in the story, the biggest is Gone with the Wind. It has been pointed out that the main female character of that story is named Scarlet, and the two female leads of the story are Ruby and Ginger, although Pratchett is on record calling that a coincidence, and Ginger is actually named after Fred Astaire's dance partner. And the golden statue reminding people of their uncles is based on the story of how the Academy Awards came to be called the Oscars. Ah, that joke makes more sense now. <laughs> the story begins on a windswept beach, a place once known as the Holy Wood. In a ramshackle hut on the dunes, Decan, last keeper of the door, has passed away. Through his conversation with death, we learned that it had been his job to say the chants and keep lit the torches as a means of remembering what happened to the Holy Wood. And now that nobody alive remembers what it was, the wild idea is free to share its dream with the world. Wild ideas are a recurring thing on Discworld. I liked seeing it taken from a gag to being a major plot point and, well, the driving force behind this book. It's not like the sparks of inspiration we have seen before. It's like an actual force. 
Yeah, I'll take inspiration any day, but a fully fledged idea just cramming itself into my skull. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) And before I had read any of the Discworld novels, the one thing I did know about them is Terry Pratchett's idea of like ideas as kind of this like force of magic and power in its world. And it's a very cool idea. So it makes sense that out of like everything, that's one that kind of reaches outside the fringes of the like series. We then join Thomas Silverfish and the other members of the Alchemist's Guild in Ankh-Morpork as they perfect their latest discovery, Octocellulose, the material for creating moving pictures. Without entirely understanding why, they decide to pack their bags and set up shop in Holywood. Go west, young man. <laughs> the way this scene is written, I would have thought that PV, the Alchemist who invents popcorn, would have been a bigger character, like the amount of focus he gets in this scene. Mm -hmm. I would have expected him to have a minor subplot of maybe getting super rich off of selling popcorn, because it's a a known thing that popcorn is actually super cheap to make, but is very expensive at movie theaters. Same thing with the soda, actually. Um, Most fast food businesses make most of their money off of the drinks. Capitalism. (laughs) The beginning of this book in general is just a little bit difficult for me to keep up with because I'm not very good with like names in general but then suddenly we were meeting so many characters in so many different places and I could not keep like any of them straight. Luckily in this scene the only character that matters is Silverfish. We then meet the laziest young man on the entire disc, Victor Tunglebend, as he and his roommate Ponder Stibbons review for their graduation exam at Unseen University. What a relatable character. Uh Uh-huh, that's what I was gonna say. (laughs) And not in the best of ways. Yeah, yeah. Like, I want to do things, but I don't want to do them. I do also relate to putting a whole lot of work into doing not the thing that you're supposed to be doing. Victor is also, like, a really interesting way to take, like, a very smart, capable character. Just, like, works really hard because it's easier than not doing that. He has a very precise kind of intellect. It's kind of a shame that he doesn't really have much interesting going on beyond that. When you think about it, though, it fits the plot actually better, considering the effect that Hollywood has over people. He never puts in the work for the acting. It just happens and he reaps the benefits. And it also kind of makes sense with his role of an actor, of just being whoever everybody else wants him to be. He's like hitting everybody's desires while still maintaining this I'm doing nothing nonchalance. Victor is scamming his late uncle's estate, staying a perpetual student to take advantage of the lack of responsibility. Unfortunately for him, the new Archchancellor, Mustrum Ridcully, is a very no-nonsense man, and the Bursar has come up with a plan for forcing Victor to graduate. Any thoughts on Ridcully the Brown? I read his name is Ridcully the Brown, and automatically that puts a very specific image in your mind. And then he just entirely overthrows that. There is not an insignificant amount of characters in this book, and he was one of the ones that just, like, I didn't offer much attention to, and I was kind of wondering why he and the Bursar were there until we got later in the book. Perhaps unfortunately for the Bursar, Victor never takes the exam. Instead, he gets entranced by the spirit of Holy Wood to join the moving picture industry. Also coming along are two characters returning from Guards Guards, Detritus the Troll and Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler. 
And hitching a ride on a cart is Gaspode, the Wonder Dog, a mangy mutt with an inferiority complex and the ability to talk. I actually like really appreciated how many callbacks there were to Guards Guards because Guards Guards feels like pretty removed from a lot of the world of this world. Uh, like it doesn't have a lot to do with the wizards necessarily or like any of the other major groups. It's just kind of its own thing. And so getting to see as many characters from it as we do is a lot of fun. I liked seeing the characters sort of thrust more into this context. They got a lot more in this book. Yeah. Full disclosure, I did not really keep track of the order of these books, and I didn't read them in proper order originally, so I had no idea that Moving Pictures was coming up so quick after Guards Guards. And if I had planned better, I wouldn't have gone on that little spiel I had then about Dibbler being like the soul of Ankhmore Pork, because like that would have been a better one to have here. I will say that Detritus gets a lot more development this time with his romance with Ruby, the lounge singer. He gets to have like relationships with other characters and because of his oafishness that has like consequences on his character. Consequences, not like the most exact word there. So Dibbler's salesmanship, backed up by Detritus's muscle, quickly propels Dibbler to an executive position in the Century of the Fruit Bat moving picture company. Meanwhile, Victor becomes an actor and meets one of Hollywood's rising stars, Ginger. Ginger was another one of the characters that, to me, I could never pin down a look in my head. She was just kind of an amorphous, glamorous being. To me, she went from kind of just a girl in makeup and an ill-fitting wig to an actual fully made-up, very early movie kind of glamour. Which, looking back, is probably the intent. Yeah, my first, like, mind pictures of her were very kind of, like, grown-up Shirley Temple-esque. Yeah, that's a good description. Crazy curls and really dresses. One thing I appreciate about Ginger is she has this great speech near the middle about all of the people who never get a chance to figure out what they're good at. And I feel like that came from a very honest place. When they begin filming together, the spirit of Hollywood seems to possess Victor and he gives an amazing performance, but winds up getting himself and Ginger fired when they leave for a lunch break. However, when the film, or click in this world, gets shown, audiences are enthralled by Victor and Ginger, and thanks to some shrewd negotiation from Gaspode, they get rehired at better pay. Gaspode also reluctantly befriends the gorgeous purebred known as Laddie. Laddie, of course, being a Lassie parody, Incidentally, most of the dogs that played Lassie were actually male dogs, because female dogs tend to go into heat, and so that cuts into the filming time. I think this is where Gaspode starts to become more of a character, because up to this point, he's really just been like a character who pops in kind of for the novelty of it, and his relationship with Laddie, I think, is a big part of that, because unlike Gaspode, who's a small, kind of like unwanted dog, Laddie is like the most perfect dog you could ever imagine. I don't know. I can imagine some pretty good dogs. I imagine Laddie's probably even better than that. <laughs> Allow me to really quickly plug my Instagram at the dogs of my commute, all one word. It's just pictures of dogs. It's a good Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. It soon comes to light that just as Victor has been infected with the spirit of Holy Wood. Ginger is being manipulated by some sort of force that seems determined to open the ancient stone door to a buried temple. 
the two of them investigate the temple and find that it is an ancient cinema. They wind up collapsing the tunnel just past the door, hoping to seal away the power, but it is too late. Victor and Ginger are brought to Ankhmore Park for the premiere of the biggest click to date, Blown Away. There the captivation of the massive audience wears away the fabric of reality and the projected images become possessed by creatures from the dungeon dimensions. The audience watches in horror as a 50-foot-tall version of Ginger steps out of the screen and rampages across the city. It snatches up the librarian and climbs the university's Tower of Art. <laughs> hey, Danny, a few episodes ago, you were talking about how Pratchett has a very cinematic approach to storytelling. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I was snickering to myself when you were saying that. <laughs> I still stand by that statement. And I think with a lot of how Pratchett describes scenes in this book, just the world around these characters, it is like the most perfect notes you could get if you were going to be like building a set. The sunken like cinema, I can imagine just like this kind of like thing carved out of stone, but it's submerged. So it's kind of like covered in like barnacles and starfish and everything. This thing that just seems like powerful in a way that like you can't really understand you know that feeling when you're walking into like a small town cinema they just have that ramp leading down between the rows of the seats just one maybe two and it's not lit up so well so if you make it in after the previews it's entirely dark except for the light from the screen that's exactly what i was picturing only with stone seats and the screen isn't so brightly illuminated it's just very dim and you can only just get the shapes of things and i was very surprised that this book took that kind of turn because that scene is like genuinely horrifying absolutely it was awesome but also it was still kind of funny right because the giant woman then mm -hmm. grabs an orangutan for mm -hmm. the king kong parody you can't see it like but it. i'm nodding my head emphat emphatically so, with aid from the Arch-Chancellor, Victor defeats the giant Holywood monster. But that's not the only place where reality needs to be reasserted. They return to the ancient sunken cinema, where things from the dungeon dimensions are struggling to break through once more. And they wake the Golden Guardian to fight them off. As the temple collapses, Victor and Ginger flee, emerging safely. Holywood is gone. Gaspode returns to his meager life, as do the alchemists and Dibbler, and Ginger and Victor are free from the influence of cosmic forces. So, the Golden Guardian that people thought looked like their uncle Oswald or Osric or Oscar was a warden. Get it? A warden? Oh my uh. god! <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, if I had made that connection, that would have been so great. Oh man, that moment where they finally put it together, like, we've been doing this all wrong. A man in front of the gate is a guard. I'm like, yes! Yes! They did it! <laughs> like, it was that kind of moment. Mm -hmm. mm, I'm not getting over that. Yeah, so that's moving pictures. One thing I was kind of left feeling, and I want to, like, explain this feeling first, but kind of like a feeling of disappointment, not in, like, how the book ended, but, like, none of the characters got, like, a typical movie ending. They all just went back to their normal lives, and it makes sense because, obviously, having them made for movie ending is antithetical to what the whole point of the book was, but it still kind of just felt a little sad. 
Well, there's always the promise for more, because normal in Ankh-Morpork is far from normal as we know it. Oh, um, one thing I didn't really touch on in the summary, there's a subplot where Dibbler keeps wanting to put a thousand elephants in the clicks, and there are these elephant herders that we keep cutting to, who are making the journey to Ankh-Morpork to deliver them. But that doesn't really factor into the plot. I'd have liked it if the elephants helped out in the story, like... Like, maybe they arrive in Hollywood Town, and their trampling is what makes the ancient cinema collapse? I definitely think that works. Yeah, because we definitely do, like, spend a lot of time talking about these elephants for it to not really have any, like, ending. That was probably my biggest source of disappointment, but at the same time, I can't fault the story for it. On, like, a similar kind of vein to the elephants, they spend, like, a not insignificant amount of time talking about how they want to, like, be the first company that gets sound in movies. And they, like, go through this whole thing where they're talking about, like, they have, like, armies of parrots that are can perfectly recall whatever they hear and how it's, like, just a constantly cacophony of noise because these parrots are repeating everything that they hear. And then that also kind of just, like, never really follows through. I mean, it does come up in the last bit when they can't speak in the ancient cinema. It just feels like the connection between where we stop talking about getting sound in movies and then the ending of the book were a little bit just, like, too far removed that whole part of the book felt like a bit of a rush to me so if there was more time put into that than i'm thinking of it's probably because i read it in a rush due to the rising action aspect of it that whole part of it kept sending me into flashbacks there was this other movie that i saw that i can't remember the name of about a silent movie actor and how he was displaced because talkies were becoming popular the artist mm -hmm. is that it probably Regardless, that's what I kept hearkening back to, and it added more, for me at least, more humor, kind of a fun aspect to that because of the fond memories I have of that movie. So I can't really be disappointed about the lack of it panning out. And that's fair. I'm, like, not hating on it at all. Like, I just wish maybe there was, like, another threader there connecting the two. Like, maybe they had almost gotten it, and so, like, sound kind of works in that, like, movie world at the end of the book. One character that I think we forgot to talk about is Soul Dibbler, Cut Me Own Throat's nephew. He basically exists to be the roadrunner to Dibbler being the wily e. coyote of commercials in the story. And that was pretty cute, but it doesn't really factor in a whole lot to the plot. I'm honestly surprised they didn't make a Hollywood land joke. And hearken to the Rocketeer, but I might have my timelines mixed up in that. I mean, like, there was that bit, it's a film monster from Hollywood land. Oh, I must have missed that. I'll have to go back and, and give it a second. I definitely plan on rereading this book. Alright. So that actually brings us to sort of closing thoughts. How do you, how do we feel about this one? I really, really liked it. I am, I wouldn't say I'm a film nut, but I really like movies. So this was... This just played on all the things I enjoy, so I, I do plan on rereading it and just savoring it. Yeah, I think this book was, like, a lot of fun, and considering it's one of the, like, heftier Discworld books we've read so far, I think it's a pretty quick read, honestly. And especially, like, if you're a film or movie fan, like, it's gonna be, like, completely in your wheelhouse. Oh, yeah. We didn't even touch on, like, half of the stuff that gets referenced in this book. Oh, there's so much. Mm -hmm. But we've only got so much time, and in fact, it's coming to the end of the episode. 
So I want to thank you two, my co-hosts, for joining me, Willow Carter for our theme music, and you all for listening. Check out our social media, Twitter, Tumblr. Ah, We don't have a Facebook as of this recording. I probably should, but I don't really want to have Facebook stuff. It's fair. It's about speaking to the audience you want to speak to. Uh, We have a Discord as well. Links to it are usually in the episode somewhere. Check your local library for the next book in the series. Reaper Man. Da-na-na. Danny, would you head us with the favorite footnote? The Necro Telecomenon was written by a Clachian necromancer known to the world as Ahmed the Mad, although he preferred to be called Ahmed the I Just Get These Headaches. It is said that the book was written in one day after Ahmed drank too much of the strange, thick Clachian coffee, which doesn't just sober you up, but takes you through sobriety and out the other side so that you glimpse the real universe beyond the clouds of warm self-delusion that sapient life usually generates around itself to stop it from turning into a nutcake. Little is known about his life prior to this event, because the page headed about the author spontaneously combusted shortly after his death. However, a section headed Other Books by the Same Author indicates his previous published work was Ahmed the I Just Get These Headaches's book of humorous cat stories, which might explain a lot. Take care, everybody. Until next time, the The turtle turtle moves. moves.